Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with the iconic hurler, Doc Gooden. Lifted in the air, Derek Jeter waiting, makes the catch, a no-hitter for Dwight Gooden. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, we're talking to a three-time World Series champ. He was the Rookie of the Year in 1984 and followed that up by winning the Cy Young Award in 1985. He's simply known as the Doc in the baseball world, ladies and gentlemen, Dwight Gooden. Dwight, thanks for coming on the program. Uh, Thanks for having me, buddy. Hope all is well. Good to be on. Everything is good on this end, buddy. You're in New York, headed to the Yankee game tonight. Yes, sir. Going to see what Otani, all that Otani talks about. This is He's my up. first time actually seeing him um, pitch and hit in person, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, pretty awesome. Get, give Aaron a little luck. Yankees needs, need to rally right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny, though? I think, you know, you know, everything starts with pitching, in my opinion. And I think once they get those guys right, and hopefully – Severino comes back. I think they're going to be all right. I'm still holding out. I'm not giving up on them just yet. It's still a lot of baseball to be played. All right. So much we go through as as Major League Baseball players. Um, I want to know, what should people know about Dwight Gooden that doesn't get written? I think um, one of the things, and not to blow smoke on my own horn, but I take a lot of pride in it. And just the way I was brought up as a kid, it was always, you know, trying to, put a smile on a stranger's face. And my, my parents taught me that what good is it, the value of having a life if you can't touch another life? So what I mean by that is, you know, I think, you know, my goal, I just try to help whoever I can, inspire a kid if I see him, if I'm at a, whether it's an event, whether it's a, my kid's really game, whatever, you're just talking to somebody and just trying to touch the next person and um, make sure if there's anything I can do personally, that I could do that and just be that for the next person, you know, our neighbor. And that's one of the things where I don't look for anything, but, you know, since you brought the question up, that's the thing I like to do. It's just a natural thing of me just giving back to the next man. Don't necessarily have to be in an event or have to be told, let's go visit these kids' hospital, whatever. Just doing things like that on my own. And I get a lot out of that, just helping others, and that get me out of my stuff. If even if I'm having a bad day, if I can help touch someone else or cheer someone else up, that's what it's all about to me. Very cool. All right, Tampa, Florida. We're going to go back to your childhood. I want to hear about a young Doc Gooden as a kid. I know you love to hit, but uh, I want to hear about Tampa. That's a that's a hotbed, Tampa, Florida. You got, you know, Tino Martinez, Wade Boggs, uh, a uh, family, a a relative of yours, Gary Sheffield, uh, Tony Larusa, Lou. That's a hotbed in Tampa. But just talk about your childhood. Oh, yeah, man. You're right. Baseball, like growing up in Tampa in the 60s, 70s, during that time, even the 80s, was all about baseball. I mean, the weather was great, obviously, year-round, so we could play year-round. Even if it wasn't our season for the, for the little park we played out, we would play against other neighborhoods, or we'll get pick-up games in our own neighborhood and play games. And as you mentioned, so many guys from out of the area. And grew up in the same house with Gary. Um, he's my nephew, but he grew up like my little brother. Um, we're four years apart. My sister had him very young, so we grew up in the same house. And it was, the funny thing about it, like, baseball was all I wanted to do as a kid growing up. Um, my dad coached Little League Baseball 
he coached semi-pro baseball, he coached softball, he coached Little League, all this stuff. So as a little kid, my dad would go out the door, I'd follow him wherever he goes. So that's how I grew up with baseball, just in my blood. And when Gary got off age, I kind of forced him to play baseball. And what I mean by that was on the weekends, you know, we get up, we eat our cereal, and I'm going outside to throw the ball around. But Gary wanted to watch cartoons, so I said to pull him out the house and make him play. So he started loving the game. But it was just a fun time growing up in Tampa. Um, at that time, good loving family, something like a mid-class family. And um, Cincinnati Reds had spring training in Tampa at that time, so they grew up as my team. Um, I was very fortunate. I got to play in the senior league World Series, which is the 14 and 15 year World Series. I would play in that. We played against a team from Taiwan. Gary and Anna, they end up beating us. And, and oh, here's, here's one I'm about to get. Charlie Hayes, I go back if I can. I'm 12 years old, Charlie Hayes is 12, and we're playing in the regionals in St. Petersburg, Florida. Whoever wins that game gets to go to the Little League World Series in um, Pennsylvania, Williamsport. So Charlie Hayes' team from Mississippi, my team from Tampa, we're gonna, we meet up, Charlie Hayes pitching, and Charlie Hayes beat us one nothing. I played right field that day. He beat us one nothing, and... He must have had at least 10 strikeouts. And today when I see Charlie, he still brings that up. But, you know, just going back at the time, man, some reason that popped in my head. But uh, he threw a curveball every pitch. For some reason, like you mentioned, Tampa had so many ball players coming out of the area and a lot of hitters. But we've been, for some reason, Tampa was known, couldn't hit the curveball. And that's, I guess, Charlie Hayes had the scout report. He threw a curveball every pitch and then beat us one nothing. <laughs> so Hillsboro High. Uh, <laughs> That was the high school you went to. I know you'd like to hit. Everybody knows Doc Gooden, you know, obviously. The the big fireball throwing, uh, got to the big leagues when you were 19. But but in high school, were you just a pitcher or were you hitting too? Yeah, I'm a hitter. Um, it's funny you bring it up because in high school and even through Lily, I was always one of the better hitters on the team. And, you know, obviously I had a good fast boy. I threw hard, but – Hitting was my thing. That's what I wanted to be, but obviously pitching was my ticket. Um, high school, I played right field, played shortstop. And um, funny story, in high school, we played Tuesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. So our pitching staff, my junior year, was we had a guy, Floyd Yeomans, who was drafted by the Mets in the second round in 82. We had a guy, Vance Lovelace, a 6'5 lefty, who was drafted by the Cubs first round in 81. And then we had Carl Everett's older brother, Albert Everett, who was drafted, I think, in the fifth round by the Minnesota Twins in 81. So that was our starting staff. And um, I was like a relief pitcher. I couldn't break that staff. Um, halfway through our junior year, Roy Yeomans get kicked off the team. He moves to California with his dad, and that opened a spot for me to get into the starting rotation halfway through my junior year. And once I got the opportunity, I mean, I just jumped right in and I tore it up. I became – I ended up winning MVP that year on our staff and for our team. And – that's what really got me on the map because the scouts would come out to watch those other guys. And then my high school coach would say, hey, you got to watch this guy, Gooden. He's not too bad. And, uh, and then and, and I took off from the end of my senior year. I was really the only pitcher we had. So a lot of times I would start on Tuesday, relieve on Friday. And depending on who we're playing Saturday, I may get in that game also. So I pitched all the time my senior year. But my junior year, when, when the scouts would come out and watch those other guys pitch, that's what got me, you know, really looked at and got my career started. And I ended up getting drafted by the Mets, obviously, first round in 82. And Yomas got drafted by the Mets the same year, but he was number two. But if Yomas don't get kicked off the team our junior year, I would have only had that one year of my senior year to really pitch to, to show what I could do. So thanks to Floyd Yomas. 
So you talk about that 82 draft. You end up going fifth overall, first round. Uh, pretty pretty prestigious draft that year. Uh, Sean Dunstan came out of that draft. Barry Larkin, David Wells, Barry Bonds was drafted in that 82 draft. Going in, did you have any college aspirations or that senior year, things were rolling for you. You knew you were going to be a high pick and, and you were just going to go pro right away. You know what? Come on, I see my senior because really I only had that one full year of pitching and I'm half a year of my junior year. So my, my high school coach was like a little bird dog scout for the Reds. He told me that I'll probably go between the 10th and 15th round. So I saw a little bit of intent to go to the University of Miami. Um, so I didn't think I was going to go that high. Um, Obviously, I wanted to play football. I didn't want to go to school because baseball is all I really loved. I mean, that was my whole life. Um, so, but based on what the coach told me, I said, wow, if I'm going 10, 15 round, you know, I go to the University of Miami. Um, there was a coach, Frazier, I forget his first name. He was the head baseball coach at Miami at the time, and he told me to give me an opportunity to play outfield as well as pitch. So, I loved that. So, I signed with them. Um, I remember we had draft. When draft day came, it was myself, Lance McCullers Sr., and this guy, Richard Montioni, those guys were the top guys in Tampa at that time for the, for the draft uh, pitchers. They had great career years in high school. So we all was down at Tampa Tribune, the paper company, watching the draft go across. Totally different than what it is now. Back then, it was just like a wire. Those across with the name. So um, so we sitting there watching the draft. And like you said, when draft started, you see Sean Dustin go number one. I forget who went two, three, four. And then number five come, you see Dwight Gooden, New York Mets. And I'm like, no way, that can't be right. So I had this guy, Tom McTroyan, who was the head um, senior writer for the Tampa Tribune at the time. I had him actually call New York to make sure this was right. I said, did he call New York? He said, no, you're right. The mess took you. Um, so I remember calling my dad, told him. And so when I drove home, when I got back home, there was all these news trucks at the house and, and you know, news writers, local news writers all at the house. It was just a big deal in Tampa at that time, you know, especially for a black kid in, the, in that area. And uh, it was just a great time for myself and the neighbors, and obviously my dad getting drafted that day. And me personally, at that time, I knew I wasn't going to college. I was going to sign no matter what because that was my dream. Well, that's pretty cool. But you go from – you're going from Tampa, Hillsborough High, and now you're going to Lynchburg, Virginia. I played in Lynchburg. Uh, it was that, that old Carolina <laughs> league. And, uh, man, your first, your first year, you punch out 300 people at 191 innings. Uh, tell me about that transition, 17 years old, going from high school and, and that transition to pro ball. Not too many people, as I look back at the draft and, and the players drafted, you got to be a special kid to go right into pro ball out of high school. You know, a lot of guys go the college route. I went the college route. It was, it benefited me, but there's, there's a handful of guys that are, that are special enough. Not only mentally do you have to be mature, but physically, how was that transition for you from, from high school play with basically boys to now you're playing, you're doing this for a living. I think um, at the beginning it was tough. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the youngest kid by like 13 years to my next sibling. Um, so leaving my parents at that time, because I I, I'm not going to lie, I was a mama's boy, you know, spoiled as rotten, you know. So it, that part was tough, leaving the nest, so to speak. Um, and like you say, going to Lynchburg and right out of high school, it was totally, totally different. I didn't know how to cook, couldn't wash, didn't know none of that stuff. So it was a lot of McDonald's, a lot of TV dinners, you know, and it's um, got a big girl, she could do your laundry, <laughs> you know, to say the truth. So it was a big adjustment um, for his plan-wise, it was a little different because a lot of guys that was on the team was like you mentioned, 
have been to junior college or four-year schools, a lot of them. Um, but to help me a little bit, Floyd Yomis and uh, Joe Young, I think was his name, those guys were there, you know, high school kids. Um, Randy Myers, he was there too. So I kind of, I knew Yomis from Little League and high school and stuff, so that helped me a little bit. But um, trying to get started there, it was, it was difficult, especially starting out 0-3. Uh, and they was ready to send me down to the lower, lower, lower A. We had a pitching coach by the name of John Comlin that, no, we're not going to send him down. Let me just talk with him and, you know, we'll work some stuff out. So we, we didn't work on anything. We just, I missed the story. We just talked about pitching inside because I wouldn't pitch inside um, because in high school, I used to hit a kid in the head, paramedics come on the field. And so I just had this fear of pitching inside of hitting someone. So I wouldn't pitch inside. Um, but John Comlin told me, he goes, when you go back out to the pitch, if a guy hits a home run off of you, the next guy wants you to hit him. Hit him in the leg. If a guy hits a ball hard off of you for a hit, the next guy wants you to knock him down. If you don't do that, we're going to send you down. So I did that like my next three or four starts. I won like four or five in a row. And they got to that point. You see, okay, you don't have to worry about hitting guys and knocking down anymore. And I ended up going, you know, 18 and one the rest of that year to finish 19 and four. And as you mentioned, getting the 300 strikeouts, to me, that was a big deal only because the last start, you know, in the, in the minor leagues, when you play double hitters, you only play seven innings. Now what they're doing down the big league. So my last start, I needed 14 strikeouts for the double hitter. So I was only going seven innings. And the last guy I struck out was my number 300. So I made it up much special. And then, you know, went went to AAA, put a playoffs in AAA World Series from there. And David Johnson just happened to be the manager. And, you know, I pitched well for him in AAA that year. And he told me wherever he managed the following year, going into the 84, that he would take me with him. And the next year he got the big league job and, the rest was history from there. Yeah, Davey, I, I played for Davey over in, in Cincinnati and uh, interesting guy. But I'll tell you, uh, you know, I, I had the opportunity to play for a lot of uh, really good managers. And Davey, to this day, uh, one of the most talented managers I've ever played for all around. Real even keel. Uh, the thing I remember about Davey is. Uh, I could be 0 for 4 with three strikeouts or I could be 3 for 4 with a with a three run homer and we win the game and and he never uh, I'd walk by him and I couldn't tell which kind of day I was having and I always thought I always respected that because I thought now that's as even keel as you can get you know you, especially sure. as a young player you play for some guys sometimes they wear their emotion on their sleeve and and we're always looking you know as much as as athletes we we get we get kind of put on a pedestal that, Oh, we're tough and we can handle all this. We're, we, we worry about stuff like that. We worry about what our managers think of us. So I always appreciate that about Davey. Um, you make your debut 1984. You're 19 years old. Uh, uh, earlier, a few months back, we had Brett Saberhagen on the program. And, and, you know, when I was doing my homework for, for Dwight Gooden, I thought, you know, saves and, and uh, Dwight had a pretty similar, career saves was shoot he was pitching pitching in the world series at at 20 <laughs> years old you're in the big leagues at 19 and and you go 17 9 right 17 and 9 right out of the gate yeah. that's two years earlier you're in high school uh what was that like for you oh uh, you're right um that was definitely a special dream come true man because once once i got invited to spring training in 84 as a non-roster player after playing one four year in the minor leagues you know, you go there, you go for the experience you're trying to get. And, and even though David told me wherever he managed, you know, he's going to take me with him. You hear those things, but then you also hear the front office and to the media. 
you know, because of his age, we probably sent him to double A, triple A. So I was, I was cool either way. But then when Davies tells me the last day of spring training, congratulations, you made the team. And then you're like, wow. And now you're thinking, man, if I'm ready for this, because now I'm going to face guys that I used to pretend to be in the backyard when me and Gary were just, you know, playing one-on-one against each other with a tennis ball and a stick. Um, like the Pete Rose, Mike Smith, you know, Dale Murphy, Andre Dawson, all these guys. Now I'm going to face them. And now I'm thinking, man, am I, am I ready for this? So you have a little doubt, you know, are you ready or are you not ready? But you're very excited about making the team and, and sharing that moment with my dad, who was there for the last game of spring training, and to see this expression on his face because my dad, all he knew, all he dreamed about was baseball. And now I'm living his dream as well as my dream. It was just a great thing to share that moment with him. And then, like you mentioned, I make the team, I uh, get my first start in Houston. And I remember Davey counted like the first four or five starts I had. But I was pitching, no matter how I was pitching, let me go like five minutes. And he kind of got me out. And I remember after the all-star break, that's when he said, okay, you're on your own, go get him. But up until that point, man, just being on the same field with guys that you pretend to be in the backyard just a previous year before that was definitely surreal and a, and a dream come true. Had great teammates. Um, Keith Hernandez is one of the guys. Um, Mike Torres, I can't say enough of nice things about him, who basically held my hand and, and showed me a way about being a big league pitcher and how you carry yourself in the big league and understanding and, and treating the game as a privilege with a big league uniform. Those are guys that stick out more than anything that I always remember and think, can't thank Mike enough for that. Yeah, what a year that, that initial year for you was. You lead the league in punch outs, youngest, youngest ever to do that. Your rookie of the year. Uh, previous year in New York, you know, Strawberry came off being the rookie of the year in 83. And you're doing this all on the biggest stage. It's not like you're, you're in uh, Kansas City. You're in the Big Apple. And, uh, you know, that rolls into 85, your Cy Young Award uh, year. You go 24 and 4 with a 1 5 3. And for me, I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, I try to put myself in Dwight Gooden's shoes, being being 20 years old, being in the Big Apple, toast of the town. You got a 100-foot mural in, in Times Square. Uh, how yeah. was that to, to take that all in at the time? Oh, man. I mean, for those things that happen, like you say, let's we'll start with the mural. When Nike put that up, it was – I couldn't believe that. That was like too much, you know, for me, you know, being 20 years old, barely, um, kid out of Tampa, Florida – now just removed out of high school for two years, and now he's doing everything is moving real fast because when all of my dream was to play major league baseball, pitch a long time, stay healthy. You never think about awards. Honestly, you never think about you know being on the side of a building. Those type of things just didn't register. And now that it's happening, I'm having a lot of success on the mound. I mean, things are going fast. I can't go outside my apartment. Got kids, me, everybody all outside. So the part away from the ballpark, to be honest, Brett, it wasn't as much fun as I had the year before. You know, away from the ballpark because I couldn't go anywhere, and you couldn't go to the mall. You couldn't be a 19, 20 year old kid and join the things you work for. At the ballpark, though, it was a um, situation where the fans just brought out the best of me every night. And um, having Gary Carter, we had traded for him that offseason as my catcher, was was just definitely a plus and was my favorite all star catcher who, who knew the league, who knew the hitters, um, a very fiery up guy who. Well, the best of me every night. If I was pitching, it was up seven nothing. He wanted me to pitch like it was one nothing. So every game, and then I remember about probably halfway through the season, I started noticing where the crowds are bigger now. Every game's selling out. You know, they're doing the K corner. Um, there's more media attention there. It was like every game was almost like a postseason game at that time. And so I knew it was bigger than just a 
a baseball game. I accepted the challenge. Um, I stayed humble. Um, a lot of credit to Mel Stoudemire, who kept me focused between starts while they come complacent. He always found things for me to work on and get better. They keep trying to improve that year from start to start. Um, it was just a fun year. I enjoyed with the fans. And no disrespect to the, the, the other hitters in the league, but every time I took them out, I, I did get caught up because I was young in that, you know, trying to go a complete game. You want the shutout. You want 10-plus strikeouts. Every game, I wanted that. And I became where it was just bigger than just a game. I'm going out there and just trying to win. You just want to go out and try to totally dominate. Yeah, no disrespect to anybody, but that was just a mindset I had. And Gary Carter broke that out of me every single day game that I pitched. Roll that into 86. It's a big year for the Mets. It's a World Series year. Um, you get a chance to start the All-Star game that year. Young, once again, I mean, it seems like Dwight Gooden in the early days, you're setting records every year. You're the youngest ever to start an All-Star game. Uh, and you go on that year to to win the World Series in that infamous you know, ball that goes through Buckner's legs. And, and I laugh because everybody thinks that was the end. And and it's like, no, you still had another game to win. But, uh, man, what a team. Uh, you had a lot of characters on that team. You mentioned earlier Hernandez and Carter, but you had Backman and Dykstra, Ray Knight, who I played for as a manager in Cincinnati as well. But just take mm-hmm. me through that 86-year start to finish and uh, – what it was like to, to win that first World Series for you? Oh, man. You know, um, 84, we had a young team. We had no expectations while having fun, but it was a big year for myself. And then I remember 85, um, the, the group of guys we had, we thought we had a chance to do some special things that year. Uh, we came up short. Uh, we won 98 games. Had to go home. We lost out to the car. Back then, it was only the two divisions. And the cars would be We got down to that last series of the season. And they beat us two out of three. To um, I'm sorry, we needed to sweep them to tie them, but we won the first two. Then they beat us the last game for them to win the division. And I remember at the end of the season, everybody's kind of you know say, hey, let's have a good season, let's come back next year. And you go home that all season of '85, and you can't wait for the season to start. Now we go to spring training '86, and you know how like when you go to spring training, you have the, the general manager talk, introduce the manager, the manager talk, introduce his coaches, training staff, and all that. 86, we didn't have that. David just came in, first day of spring training with the full squad. He said, you know, I hope everybody had a good offseason. We only have one goal this year, and that's to win the World Series. And like you said, we had a lot of characters on our team, and David was great for managing those personalities that we had. And we had guys like, say, like Danny Heath, um, Howard Johnson, uh, Kevin Mitchell, um, Kevin, those guys who have been probably starters for other teams. But nobody had the Eagles. Nobody had any group about not playing. Everybody put the Eagles aside, and we all had one common goal. And we got off that year and just started rolling from day one. Um, we had a lot of brawls. Man. We had some guys. <laughs> we had some tough guys, like you mentioned, like like Mitchell, Strawberry, Ray Knight. All these guys, they just looked for anything, anything to jump off. So as a pitcher, that was good to have because, you know, these guys had your back if anything happened. But also, these guys had a lot of knowledge of baseball and on Sunday afternoons, especially at Shade, when the traffic's so bad after the day game, we'll just sit around to the traffic that are you know, drinking beer and just talking baseball. You know, I miss those days. It was just great with the nights we had. And obviously on the road trips, we had a lot of fun. Um, at that time, we got labeled as going to party, which a lot of a lot of us did. But there's more <laughs> to it than that. It was just that era, you know, at that time where we had a very, very close team where we had a 25-man roster. If we flew into Chicago or Cincinnati, what have you, everybody go in, you call your girlfriends, call your wife, 
and at least 23 of us meet back downstairs in the lobby. We all go out to eat together, and then we hit the town. It's a very, very close team. And like you mentioned, Davey earlier, Davey was probably – he was my favorite manager by far. Um, and what I mean by players manager, where on playing rise, you know, normally the manager and the coaches, they sit up front, but Davey would come in the back, play cards with the guys on the road. He'll go out to eat with some of the guys, you know, have drinks. He's just part of us. He had a set of rules. As long as you didn't break his rules, everything was cool. Uh, he protected the players at all times. You know, like I say, he might find you, he might get in your face, but protected the guys. And it was just a fun team. And, and like you mentioned, when we got to the end, we had, by, I think September, we had lose up by like 30 games. So we had that last month, we just kind of ride it out. They went into the, the postseason with Houston and obviously World Series with the Red Sox. Um, just a fun team. And the way it turned out, the way it ended, it was like the way it was supposed to end. And we had to win that year because we came so close. The year before and the year we had the guys held on our team and just a good mixture of young guys and better guys. You know, we had some um, wild guys, keep the team loose, just a lot of different personalities, but all came together for one coming goal. And it was just fun. And like you mentioned, um, everybody talk about like game six of the World Series, but I tell you what, game six of the playoffs against the Astros was probably a, just a bigger game. It's just, just a different atmosphere. Um, that game went 16 innings. And we had to win that game because. We wanted no part of Mike Scott the next night for game seven. He was so far in our hitter's head. Not only could we not hit him, but it was like from the middle standpoint, he was already defeated. He was more concerned with catching Mike Scott cheating than trying to hit him. So we wanted no part of that, and we actually won that game six. And then, as you mentioned, the Buckner playing game six of the World Series. Uh, felt bad for Buckner later on because he had a great career, but he was only remembered for that one play. And the way that happened, it went down. And like you said, we still had another game. Um, the next day we got rained out. Then we had the game seven. But after game six, we were down a couple of runs in game seven, but we just knew it was a matter of time before we won game seven because we took their heart in game six. There's no way that's going back to beat us then. And, and to win in the World Series in New York, at our home field and celebrate with the fans, they don't get no better feel than that. Like I had the opportunity to win with the Yankees too, and that was great. But it was nothing like winning that first one. And doing it in New York. How would that 86 team, how, how would they fast forward that 80, put that 86 team on a 2021? <laughs> how would they do with this, with the social media world we're in right now? Oh man. I think uh, half of us are probably locked up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, thank God there's no social media back then, brother. Um, totally different ball game now. I mean, we had a lot of fun back then, a lot of fun. And, and that's what I miss most. I don't miss playing. I miss hanging out on the road with those guys. And, and you know, um, but so when I see them, it's good to see them. Look, they're doing well. Stomach's are good. Everybody's good. But that definitely would be something to see. The 86 Mets on the 21. <laughs> or I know the social media. I couldn't even imagine. So 87. You win 15 games, 88, you win 19. You had a 2.8 ERA in 89. In 1990, you win 19 games again. That's a pretty good run. But talk to me about 89. Uh, you had shoulder problems. You had injuries for the first time. Yeah, that was a difficult because, you know, growing up as a kid, my dad taught me about pitching. He was always big on mechanics. And that's just because, And then when you get to the major league, everybody talks about your mechanics. Everybody says, oh, he's got the perfect mechanics. Oh, he'll never get hurt. Oh, he'll pitch forever. You hear those things and you start believing those things. Unfortunately, you get hurt. Um, you think maybe, maybe that's not the message of stories, but no, it's like, no, that's pain. That's hurting real bad. And um, it, was, it was tough because I had never went through that at no stage in my, in my career. 
uh, whether it's little league, high school, you know, minors, majors, what have you. And the first time you experience that, and you can't go out and help your team or perform, and you're just rehabbing, and then that was tough. And then from that point, you go from trying after you pitch, you know, you put on this work in the next four days to try to get on the mound on that fifth day. It was very difficult from a mental standpoint. And um, I think with that, I was never the same pitch I was before that injury. And the game would just look different because when you've had a lot of success and you're not able to put up those numbers like you normally do, from the mental part, it, play, it plays a little bit on you. It takes a little toll until you make this um, adjustment and, and, and able to set you know, where you are at the time and still go out and, and at least you know, perform at a, at a high level. So we're going to go a little forward to uh, that 95 season. And, you know, we, we everybody's read about it. You've read about it. You've you've been honest and, and you've been open about uh, that 95 and what happened. You got suspended uh, after the 94 season with the Mets. Uh, that would be the last year that you play in New York. How was that for Dwight Gooden? Was that was that a moment in your life uh, where you really had to look at yourself? Was it was that a mirror moment for you? Oh man, that part is one of the, from a baseball standpoint and a person when that probably the lowest I've ever been, um, to go through that because baseball since I was seven years old is something I always did, something I always look forward to. Baseball is always an escape for me to get away from whatever I might have been going through personal or whatever's going on. And I remember ninety four getting suspended. I went to Betty Ford Clinic, uh, came out and met with the uh, baseball doctors, went back to Tampa and I was doing okay. And then I had a relapse um, that was going into the 95, right before the 95 season. And I remember getting a letter from Bud Seelig said you're suspended for the 1995 season. I sat in my bedroom and I read that letter over and over, hoping I missed something. Because I couldn't believe or accept that I'm going to miss the entire 95 season. And at that point, instead of saying, okay, get better, I actually got worse, to be honest. Um, went back out, you know, and just got to hit the bottom. I mean, bottom of the bottom. Hanging in the hotels uh, for days, not being there for my kids, not missing birthdays, missing parties. All this stuff was going on until one day I met this guy, Ray Negron, who actually still works for the Yankees. I don't know if you know Ray. He lived about maybe about four or five blocks away from me. Um, and I found out he was a guy that had connections to Japan. So just tell you how poor out I was at that time and how lost I was in Japan. So I said, wow, let me talk to him about going to Japan. So instead of me trying to get my life together at that time, I figured I still want to play baseball. I go to Japan and play. So I met with Ray. We talked about it. Said, yeah, I'll get to Japan. Get the first year, get your life together. Yeah, get in shape. So every morning, Ray would come over. We'll go to Eckerd College, which is close by my house. Work out with this guy Larry Mel, who used to be the head trainer of the Mets in the uh, late seventies, early eighties. Before I got there, he would train me, he'd train me in shape. Then that, and then we met this guy Ron Doc, who was one of the the doctors for the, for the um, Yankees, the drug doctor. I met him. So my day would consist of go work out, come home, eat, pick my kids up from school, go to an NAA meeting, and then go home. After about three weeks of doing that, I started feeling pretty good about myself. And I was okay that I wanted to play baseball. And I told Ray, I said, look, I don't want to go to Japan. I don't want no part of Japan. I'm feeling good now. I'll just, you know, do the suspension. And when my suspension's up, hopefully I'm ready to go back and play. But right now I could take this time to get my life in order. So every day I had the routine. And I got to a point where I was feeling good. Um, and then when my suspension was lifted, the end of, uh, I think it was October, um, at that time, I think the only teams came to watch me throw was, I think the Yankees signed about somebody and then the White Sox signed somebody. And I actually went to Miami 
at the end of the year and threw for Miami and the Marlins because Sheffield was with the Marlins. So she got me a look down over Dombrowski and we threw for them. And But I ended up signing with the Yankees. I met with George. Ray had a, he had a good um, relationship with George. He said, George, like, let me with you. I met with George, talked about everything but baseball. And so I remember going home that night and I said, wow, you know, um, I don't think George wanted me. He wasn't know where I was at. The next day, he calls back and said he wanted to meet with me. So me, Ray, my dad, and George sat down and met and worked out a deal. And it was funny because I never wanted to leave New York the way that I left, you know, with being suspended from baseball. I always wanted to make it right with the fans there. And George gave me an opportunity to do that and then join the Yankees. Um, and it was just great. And I actually got off to a slow start that year in 96. But I got to turn around and end up throwing a no-hitter. So sometimes the way things happen, you don't know how they're going to turn out, but you just try to make the best out of it. And, and you mentioned you mentioned the no hitter that year. You signed with the Yankees uh, back in '96. Another World Series year. You end up winning your second ring, but but in May you do you pitch the no hitter. Uh, I've been on the I, I've been on the the winning side of one one uh, one no hitter. Chris Bazio in Seattle. I've uh, never been no hit. Uh, I, I'm kind of a, I, I've been close a couple times. I think two stints <laughs> we had Pe- Pedro in the eighth, and we ended up squeaking out a knock. But uh, tell the people listening to the Boone podcast what it's really like in that dugout. I know as a position player. And I had a few close calls with with teammates that were, uh, you know, flirting with a no hitter. Like I said, only had one that that went to fruition. But what was that like that day? And and how did those players treat you? I know as a position player, if if Doc's my teammate and and we're getting to the sixth, seventh day and there's no hits, I'm staying away from you. Uh, But (laughs) tell tell the guys out there what it's really like. and, And if the players actually did that to you that night. Oh, they did, you know, most definitely. And, and I can, you know, what's funny about that day was, um, like I said, that, that year started off 0 and 3. They had to bench me. Well, I did get benched. I actually tore bench me. That's where you don't get in it if you're up 10 or you're down 10. Um, but unfortunately, David Cohen got the aneurysm. That got me back into the rotation. And my fifth start back in was a no hitter. But the day that I actually pitched a no hitter, I had permission. I was supposed to fly home to build my dad, who was having open heart surgery the next day. He had been on dialysis for 15 years. And the doctor said that his health was deteriorating. And he said if he didn't have the surgery, he wouldn't make it a week. And if he did have the surgery, just because of his health, he may not make it. And there's no other options. And I was supposed to go home that day. And that morning I woke up, I said, you know what? He would probably want me to pitch. So I called Joe Torrey, who was the manager of the team at that time. I told him I'll see him tonight. I'm coming in to pitch. He said, no, go home. Take as much time you need. We'll see you get back. I said, no, I'll see you tonight. I'm pitching. And then I had to call my mom just so I wasn't coming home. He said, no, you have to be here. Your dad needs you. You need the support. Your family's going to be here. We're expecting you to be here. You have to be here. And I actually hung the phone up on my mom because I was feeling guilty knowing that I wasn't going home. And I get to the ballpark that day, and I'm thinking, did I make the right decision? Did I not make the right decision? And when the game would start, the first three innings, I was standing in a walkway between the uh, clubhouse and the dugout. I was kind of right there, sometimes tearing up, wondering if I made the right decision or not. And not until the sixth inning, when I realized that I had a no-hitter, I was looking at the scoreboard to see who I had coming up next to the face. You see no runs, no hits, no errors. And your heart starts pumping up faster. And like you mentioned, everybody in the dugout standing away from you. As a pitcher, you know why they're standing away. <laughs> but just, you know, to yourself, nobody's talking to you. Occasionally, the uh, trainer will come over and say, hey, you need anything, water, towel, whatever. And you're like, no, I'm fine, whatever. Um, 
So the rest of that game, you're pitching. And I've had better stuff than that game, but that particular game, I just made pitches, keep pitching when I had to. Um, I remember the ninth inning, the score was 2 nothing. I go out for the ninth inning, and I walked the first two guys. And I remember Mel Stoudemire, who was my pitching coach, who also I had you know, early in my career at the Mets, he came out to the mound, and he said, how are we doing? I said, it don't matter. You know, I'm not coming out. But once you get that close, you got to go for it. And, and Seattle – they had a lineup. I mean, they was loaded in 96. That team was tough. And the last pitch of the game was a hanging curveball to Paul Sorrento. I'm basically sitting on a tee. On a tee. Well, you would have hit it 400 feet, I'm sure. Just sitting right there on the tee, and he popped it up. And it seemed like the ball went coming down forever. Finally coming down, Jeter catches it. Third out for no hitter, and the team's carrying me off the field. That feeling is still gives me cheers when I think about it, and I talk about it because – as my teammates are carrying me off the field, I'm thinking about where I was the previous year when I was suspended from baseball. I, I reminisce on reading a letter from Bud Selig. I remember starting off the season 0-3, sitting in the, in, the, in the bullpen, just sitting there not having a chance to pitch. Uh, is my dad going to be okay? Um, doing that here at Yankee Stadium. All these things are going through my mind. Um, the next day, I, I took a ball from the game. She takes it to the hospital to get to my dad when I flew to Tampa. Um, at that time, he was on life support. He never made it home. I obviously ended up passing away, but the last game he saw me pitch was that no hitter, and that's what made it that much special. And that was always be a special moment from a personal standpoint in my baseball career. Wow, and and, and that's cool because I mean, you struggling with that decision of going home. You got mom, and you said you grew up and you were a mommy's boy, and and I know how that feeling is. You you've got strong ties to her, but you just felt, you know, dad would want me to pitch right now. And and yeah. you had to wrestle with that. It ends up being one of one of the greatest uh, days on the mound of your life. It's it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. You guys end up winning a World Series. Play another year with the New York Yankees. Uh, you have a couple years in Cleveland, and then in two thousand, uh, you start off with the Astros. You play, spend some time in Tampa Bay, and you come on back home to the Big Apple. You're with the Yankees again for World Series ring number three. Uh, Tell me about that journey. Oh, man. You, you know what's amazing was, as, as I mentioned, when I joined the Yankees, one of the things um, on that, the note that I did in 94 with the New York fans. So after 95, right, right before I signed the Yankees, I actually called the Mets. Steve Phillips was the general manager, and I said, any chance I could come back or do whatever, it doesn't matter with salary. He said, unfortunately, you know, we think it's time that we go separate ways. So I just said that. I signed with the Yankees, so I played, like you said, the two years I played with the Yankees, 96, 97. After that, I was a free agent. I called the Mets again. I said, hey, I'd like to come back. Um, I'll take whatever. I said, unfortunately, we have our rotation. We'll set. We wish you the best. I go to Cleveland for two years. It's there for two years. After that's over, after the 99 season, I called the Mets again. Any chance, you know, I can come back now. How do you guys rotation? I'll compete for a job. Don't have any room, Doc. Sorry. I signed with the Astros. I was trying to sign with Tampa because I knew 2000 was in my last year. So I wanted to play in Tampa for my family, my kids there, living in Tampa. Um, I forget the general manager's name, but we couldn't work out nothing. So I ended up signing with the Astros. And um, Jerry Hunksinger was a general manager with Astros at the time. He was an assistant general manager with the Mets when I was there. And so when I signed with them, he had told me they had some kid, I can't remember his name, big prospect at the time, was coming back from Tommy John surgery. So I'm not sure when he's going to be ready. But when he's ready, depending on how you're pitching, you know, we'll go from there. Unfortunately, I had one start that show that the kid was ready. So 
Jerry said, hey, I can put you in the bullpen, or we have a trade for you on to Tampa. And so I said, okay, I'll take the trade to Tampa. I go to Tampa. I have eight starts. I get released. I call the Mets again. I say, hey, I'll come there. I'll go to AAA. I'll go wherever. I just want to end my career at the Mets. They said, no, unfortunately, we have anything. I sat home for a month. Um, Mr. Steinbrenner called me himself. So I was living in Tampa. He said, hey, you still want to play? I said, yes. He said, show up at the complex tomorrow. Work out with Billy Connors, the late Billy Connors. Um, if things don't work out, you can come work for me. I said, okay. So I, I show up to the ballpark in Tampa, minor league complex. Start training, working out. I was going against um, minor league, the uh, Ricky team a couple of times. And the next morning, I remember Billy called me in the office. He said, I didn't see in the office. So I'm thinking I'm getting released. And he said, we need a pitcher in New York. It's the day-night double hitter. The day game was at Shea Stadium. The night game was at Yankee Stadium. They, we need you for the day game against the Mets. So I thought, wow. I, I couldn't tell him I wasn't ready. But I figured, you know, this would be a good good way to go. At least I get to go to Shea Stadium that one last time. Um, so I went there, pitched well, pitched five innings, got the win. Stayed with the Yankees the rest of the year, pitched out of the bullpen. But then we ended up in, beating the Mets in the Royal Series. And I was like, oh, man, I, yeah, I couldn't have wrote a better strip than that. And I was like, man, this this is awesome, and it ended that way. Like I, I consider myself a Met, obviously, but I'm very thankful for the opportunity that the Yankees gave me as well. Um, Finishing my career in New York, I didn't want to finish on the note that I did in, in '94, '95. So 2000, that, that third uh, World Series ring. Which one was the sweetest out of the three? Oh man, that's a, that's a tough question. They all had different meanings because, like you said, 2000 was against the Mets out there. So many tries to come back, they wouldn't do it. And then 96 was after a suspension, and my dad's last year, they watched me pitch. But then 86 was my very first one, and doing it with a team that drafted me, and doing it with guys that most of them I played in the minors with. If I had to pick one, I'd probably say 86, because that was my very first one, and winning it in New York and sharing it with the Mets fans when they ran all on the field. So I would say 86, but it's a close, close. Close call on picking the best one. They all have a special meaning, but I'll say 86 is probably my personal favorite. And you got to – you retire after the 2000 season, and you you still got a – you got a couple couple more special moments coming up uh, with the Mets. You got to go – you were invited to come in 2008 uh, at the closing of Shea Stadium. But now, personally, Doc, I couldn't stand Shea Stadium. I couldn't stand playing there. There's stupid planes flying over my head. For oh, yeah. some reason, I didn't see the ball good there. <laughs> That's just me as a crazy hitter. But how, spe- how special was that, uh, getting asked to come back for the closing of Shea Stadium, 2008? Oh, man, I'll tell you what, too, because after the 2000 season playing with the Yankees there, I haven't been to Shea Stadium since 2000, but as a Mets, you know, uh, anything involved with the Mets, doing anything with the Mets, I haven't been, I wasn't right there since 94. And it was just like, you know, I was just there with a lot of stuff. And basically, should have been upset with myself the way it ended. Um, but to get an invite to come back there for the Children's Shea Stadium, like with your team, guys that, you know, you want to versus with, and some guys that you play with, whether it's there to attend those guys, and closing that stadium. Man, that was unbelievable. And being in front of the Met fans, you know, for the first time since basically since 94, not knowing what type of reception you're going to get, not knowing how you're going to be received. Um, and when they called my name and they come out and come in, the, 
the roar of the crowd, man, it was just nothing like it. It brought back memories of like the 85 season and the 86 season a little bit. And I teared up a little bit and you go to home play and you kind of hold your arms up. And what a feeling, man. Those fans, they always, you know, no matter what I was going through, always showed me a lot of love, a lot of support. And I couldn't thank them enough. And right there was just definitely the icing on it. But I will always remember that day. That was definitely a special day. And it, and I think if it's possible, it got a little bit better. 2010, you get that that call. Uh, you're, a, you're they're going to induct you into the Mets Hall of Fame. You're getting to go in with your childhood buddy uh, Daryl Strawberry and your skipper for a lot of years, Davey Johnson. Uh, tell me about that phone call when you when, when you got that news. I remember I was driving. I don't know where I was coming from, but um, Jeff Jeff one point called me up. He goes, Doc. Um, have some good news for you. I want to say that we're going to put you in the mess off. And I couldn't believe it. I had to pull off the side of the road because I thought that was never happening just because the way things ended. And then when you were a team, you're not sure. Like, I used to always have doubts in my head. Did I do enough? You know, when they drafted me, did I complete? Did I make them happy? Were they satisfied with, you know, me, the person that drafted? All the different things go in my head. And then the way my career ended with the Mets, so all that comes to mind. So I never thought that the day would come or they would put me in the Hall of Fame, the Mets Hall of Fame. And when I got that call, I couldn't believe it. And and then when you have the ceremony at the at, uh, city field, and I have all my kids there, and my little kids were there, they, they didn't never get to see me play. But the older kids, they saw me play. And that's my older kids. They was there for the, everything, mostly the beginning. Um, my youngest kid was born in 86. I mean, my oldest kid was actually born in 86. And so my older kids, they witnessed suspensions. They went to they witnessed some of the great days there as well. So... They shared with them, and my mom was there. Um, my dad had them pass away, obviously, but my mom was there. Who I thought it was just meant to be that way because my dad. Every time we talk baseball, is always my dad. Me spending time with my dad. My dad teaches me. It's all my dad, dad. But my mom is basically the bite bone of everything um, from little league all the way up. And that was the day I was able to celebrate that with her and my kids, and especially my mom to show her the love and tell her how much I appreciated her of always been there and put me in a good situation to succeed as a kid and even through my ups and downs, never giving up on me as a person and just being there. I mean, especially in the fans, the fans are unbelievable. And the shit up with the fans that one last time there. And it was a sellout crowd and to see the appreciation that they had for me and the love they showed me, I was trying to get that back to them. And, and as you mentioned, going in with Daryl Strawberry and David Johnson and Frank Cashin was the general manager. Those guys, man, was the heart and soul to keep everything together. And to go in that day with them, always so special. And that's something that nobody can take away from you. That's something that your kids, your grandkids, can always share with, with their kids or grandkids or their friends. That's something that you accomplished. And I thank the Mets for that. And I thank the fans for that day also. It was just one of those days that you didn't want to end. You just want to keep going and going. But definitely remember it. It was always fun to go back to the field and, and share those moments with those fans. What advice would you give that 17-year-old Dwight Gooden just got picked in the fifth round of the draft out of Hillsboro High? What would the Dwight Gooden of today tell that 17-year-old Dwight? Oh, man. I think what I would say is, um, you know, remember how you got there. Remember what you worked for for that day to happen. But also remember that you're going to meet people that are not going to have your best interest. And also remember you're going to probably go through some tough times, but you have to be true to yourself. 
honest with yourself and have someone you can talk to and trust about whatever you're truly feeling, not what you're giving the media or anybody else, what you're truly feeling inside and be okay with that. Um, and, and know that, you know, these things, if you don't talk about them, it can affect you and your family. And, and being a man is about dealing with those problems and talking about them and hitting them head on before they get to, you know, get worse. And making understanding how you got there and understanding that life shows up, but it's how you deal with life and being able to stop whatever you're going through before it gets, you know, worse. Best player you ever played with. Best player. Wow. Whoa, man, that's a tough one. Um, I think the best player, I would probably say Derek Jeter, probably being consistent. But most talent, I would probably say Daryl Strawberry. What do you want to be remembered for? I think what I like to remember for is a guy that obviously, as as a person, has some ups and downs, got knocked down many times, but was able to get back up and keep going instead of giving in. And being able to turn the mess that I made over and over into messages to help someone along the way. And I've never obviously been perfect, but I made mistakes. But when I made those mistakes, I faced them. I didn't justify anything and just try to get better and learn from it and help somebody else. So you have to go through some of the things that I went through. Well-documented, longtime friends with uh, Daryl Strawberry. How, how are you and him doing these days? Things are good today. Um, obviously, when we played, you know, we, we if you saw one, you saw the other. Uh, we had some great times together. And then, unfortunately, when we retired, we had some run-ins where we wanted to basically kill each other. Um, and some things sounded very childish on my behalf and his behalf where – we leaked a lot of things out to the media based on stuff we was hearing. I was hearing him saying stuff about me, hearing stuff that I was saying about him. Instead of us being men, calling each other, pick up the phone and talking about it, I think we went at it the wrong way, but we also learned from that and talked about that. And we have a great relationship today. And even through all the stuff we've been through, I know at the end of the day, he's there for me and I'm there for him. We love each other. Um, things are a lot better today. They're real. Um, and like I said, a learning lesson, but much respect for him and his family today. So we have no problems in season good. Awesome. Dwight Gooden. Uh, I just want to tell you, it was, it was a pleasure, man. Thanks for making this happen. A lot of fun. Uh, obviously hell of a career, uh, guy with a big, big heart. And what we do at the end of each and every Boone podcast is we kick it to Dan, the voice of the podcast, for a question from the fans. Dano? Doc Dwight Gooden, how are you, sir? Good. How you doing, buddy? Doing well. All right. The question I have comes from Dave in New Jersey, and he wants to he wants to know this. There's been a lot a lot of things written, and there's been a lot of documentaries about those eighty six Mets. What is it about that team that the media did not get right? What is something that we don't know about that team that should be uh, should be told? Great question. I think, like you said, there's been a lot of stuff said, a lot of stuff written, a lot of stuff talked about. But the one thing you never heard that I admired the most was it was a lot of baseball knowledge on that team. We had a lot of baseball knowledge. We all love baseball, number one, and had a lot of, lot of knowledge. And like I mentioned earlier, on Sundays after – afternoon at the day games at Shea Stadium, all of us would be around just talking baseball. We love baseball on plane rides, on bus rides in hotels, just talking baseball. And if somebody threw it up in a game or something happened, you know, guys would air them out. We'd talk about it, but then at the end of the day, you know, we had his back or they had my back or what have you. But I just think that the knowledge that we had about the game 
don't be talked about enough or even talked about at all because overshadowed by all the other stuff they talk about. All right. And is and one more question for you. This one's from Matt in Kansas City, and he wants to know, was there any hitter during your time when you pitched that actually you hated facing or you actually was the scariest one to you? <laughs> yeah, that's easy. Uh, Chili Davis, man. Chili Davis was one of those guys where when he was with the San Francisco Giants in my prime, I could not get this guy out. I remember trying to intimidate him where you throw and you knock him down or you, you might hit him in the leg or what have you, but it didn't matter. I just could not get Chili out and then – I go to Cleveland for a couple of years, and he came to the Yankees, and it was the same story. I just could not get this guy out. He gave me a lot of trouble, and I used to just try to make sure I got the guys out in front of him. So when I faced him, he couldn't do too much damage. But it was one of the guys I hated facing. I had no answer for him at all. Doc Gooden, thanks for coming on the Bread Boot Podcast. You rock, man. Yes, sir. My pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate you guys. Mailbag. All right, Boone, you know that sound by now. Uh, mailbag time, Dan. Mailbag time. All right, Booner. This one comes from Matt in Kansas City, and he wants to know, Brett, what does it mean when someone calls a hitter a peaker? A peaker. Okay. Um, that means when you go in, the, when you get into the box, uh, you give a last minute. You're getting your setup, your preparation. Everybody has different checkpoints as hitters that we go to. Some it's you know it's I got to do this, this, this. Now I'm ready to go. And some guys at the last minute will try to take a peek back at the catcher's signs. Now this is a big no-no. Uh, if that happens, usually there's hell to pay for that hitter if he gets caught. Usually the only guy that can really catch him is that catcher. You know, because they're constantly, if you watch a big league game, you'll see that catcher constantly looking up at the hitter to make sure he's not peeking back. And sometimes it's not even for fans or, or for to get what pitch is coming. It's a location. So we'll see if the catcher sets up outside or he sets up inside. That's why you'll see a catcher in a big league game a lot of times at the last second, just before the ball's delivered, might pound his glove inside and then pop outside. Uh, to just try to throw the hitter off. But, uh, yeah, I, I never could do it. I, I never even would think about doing it. Uh, too risky. The guys that really do it, notice the guys that wear the glasses during day games. You've got mirror rims on. Those guys can peek because there's no proof that they're peeking. So look out for those guys with the glasses during day games. All right. So peeking in baseball, cheating. Peeking in real life is a uh, misdemeanor. All right, back to the mailbag we go. And this one comes from Art in Sarasota. He wants to know, Brett, right now, what goes on in the clubhouse when you you play for a team, when you're up 16 games under 500 and it's only in June, or if your team's in last place behind a certain team going 16 into the uh, all-star break? Well, that's something, you know, I've been on both sides of the ledger. And uh, obviously, when you're out 16 games, it's not very fun. You got to find a way professionally to dig down and, and play for a reason. You know, I've, I've been on some teams where we kind of knew we were out of it by the All Star break. And what are we going to do with this second half? And sometimes you got to set selfish goals, personal goals. It's, I, get, I still got to do my end. Uh, you know, for this team, there's something to be salvaged. Who knows what it is? Maybe it's a free agent run. Maybe it's an arbitration run. You know, the better you play, that's going to reflect in your salary in the future. So as a player, you can always dig down and find a reason to play. It kind of sucks when it's the, you know, it's the, 
the last place team and, and you got to play just for yourself. Uh, but y- you find a way. And, and like I said, I've been on both sides of the ledger. It, it's a lot more fun when you're 16 up at the break versus 16 down. All right. That is going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director, producer, and the voice of the Boone Podcast. Executive producer is Rich Herrera. Digital gets handled by Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors and friends and all those who love the game of baseball. And make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, Give it a five-star rating and share your feelings of the Boom Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boom Podcast, my name is Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. See ya.